Greetings, my name is Chad Lewis. I'm a pastor here at Sojourn, and we are, like Larry said, continuing with our identity series. And today I want to start us with this thought. You praise what you prize. You praise what you prize. Have you ever been in a conversation with someone who was very passionate about something and they knew details about it, they had life experience with it, they just flowed with enthusiasm, but you were kind of not interested. And you're like, oh, okay, yeah, how long is this gonna take? But in reality, you can say, well, what they're passionate about, they put time and energy, they put their mind's attention, their imagination, their heart's affection are for that thing, they move their body as a vehicle to go and pursue that thing and learn about it. And so we, we remember this idea. We praise what we prize. We praise what we prize. I've been a surgeon for 14 years now. When I first came, I, I got to be friends with a couple guys, Eddie Morris, who's uh, on staff here and still rock and roll hero to this day, and, and Pastor Mike Cosper, and we started playing a lot of music together. And these guys praised what they prized. And we'd go out to eat. And it was kind of uh, mind-boggling what they'd know. They, they praised what they prized. Recording gear, guitar pedals, vintage amps. Their intellect was filled with facts galore of information, 70s bands that you'd never heard of. Their heart, their passion was drawn towards that. Their bodies were going to music stores. They'd let me tag along and I wouldn't know what they were doing. So I'd linger over to the acoustic guitar section, just pluck around while they were doing all this mad scientist stuff. And there came a time in our relationship where I just asked them, I said, guys, I don't mind that y'all talk about this stuff, but please just don't do it when I'm present because it's very ostracizing. I don't feel like I'm part of the conversation. But what was the heartbeat for why they even research that stuff. Why They had a passion for music and creating music for the church, and they've done amazing music over the years. They praised what they prized. And today we're looking at the identity of worshiper, and I truly believe that the question is not, are you worshiping? The question actually is, who or what are you worshiping? Because we were created as worshipers, Ed W. Tozer's a famous pastor of old, and he wrote The Pursuit of God, which is a famous book. Actually, in his later years, he did a, a sermon series called The Missing Jewel of Worship, and they put it together to a little book. But he said this, he said, the most, most natural state of humanity is to be worshiping. Now, the problem comes that in the fall, sin enters and that worship goes sideways. We worship anything under the sun. We give our affections, our time, our, what we seek to fulfill ourselves, fill our souls with anything but God himself. And the good news is that when God redeems us, we become his children. He is making that new. He's redeeming that worshiper identity to say all those things that you've been pursuing, all those things you put your, your worship into, let's redirect that to me because that is gonna fulfill your souls. That is what's going to make you whole. And so as we look at worship today and what's it mean to be a true worshiper? I want us to think again holistically, thinking about our minds, thinking about our hearts, thinking about our bodies, the whole of our lives, because we will praise what we prize. So how do we prize God more and more? Today, your outline follows 
with vision, intention, and means, the vision for the worshiper, the intention of the worshiper, and the means of the worshiper. And it's a model from uh, an old philosopher and also Pastor Dallas Willard. He called it the VIM model, V-I-M. And vision, he, he said, unless you start with a vision, you won't see change in your life. But if we start with a vision and then the intention he uses as values, what, what values undergird that vision? And then the means, what's the application? What are you gonna do about it? What are you gonna move towards in participation? So let's begin with vision for worship. We picked up in the middle of, of a passage uh, in John chapter four, and we're gonna go back and read a little bit of the pretext for it so we can know some of this dialogue. And Jesus gives us a brief summary, but a very profound piece of information about what a true worshiper is. And I would just put before you here, the vision for worshipers is that we would offer our whole lives, our whole lives to the one true living God. And even as we sang just a few minutes ago, that we can be satisfied in him. Satisfaction through the ups and downs of life, it only comes through him. Nothing else will fill our souls. We were created to worship. And so this is the conversation Jesus has. In verse seven, when a Samaritan woman came to draw water, Jesus said, will you give me a drink? And this is gonna be shocking. His disciples had gone into the town to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, you are a Jew and I'm a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? For Jews do not associate with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that asks you for your drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. And in verse 13, Jesus answered, everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks the water I give them will never thirst. The water I give them will become in them a spring of water welling up to eternal life. And the first thing we wanna say before we even think about pondering this vision to offer our whole lives, we need to understand what Jesus is doing here with the Samaritan woman is he's saying, woman, madam, you are in need. You are in need. If you flip back one chapter, this is John chapter four, John chapter three, he's doing the same thing with Nicodemus. He's saying, Nicodemus, you're a religious teacher. You know all this stuff, everything else. Unless you're born again, he's saying you're in need. And it is common to all humanity. We are creatures created to need God. We need air, we need breath, we need food, we need relationship. And we are needy creatures, but we're supposed to be. It's not that we're trying to get rid of our need, it's where we take our need. And God's saying, bring it to me, I will fulfill you. I'll give you what you need. And so as we think about this idea that we're in need, the religious scholar needed Jesus, the immoral Samaritan woman needed Jesus and Jesus meets them where they are. And even just meditating on this and growing in the Christian life, I'm just still blown away. The Jews did not associate with the Samaritans. The Samaritans didn't have a right view of God. They just had the first five books of the Bible. They, they just used the Pentateuch. They didn't use the law and the prophets. They didn't use the writings of David and, and these things. And so not only did they have syncretic beliefs, they, they had a wrong view of where to worship. They weren't following God's ways and, and they mixed it with all sorts of stuff. 
And then here also, this woman was an immoral woman. Commentators say she's going to the, the well in the heat of the day because she was probably ashamed to go in the evening when most people went in the cool of the day to get water. So she's here. And then it, it, it gets even bigger when you think about a Jew couldn't eat or drink from a, Jew, from a Samaritan dish because it would defile them. And what she's not understanding is that Jesus, the one talking to her, who's about to reveal himself, Jesus is the one who, when he touches you, you become clean. Anybody else touching a leper gets leprosy. But when Jesus touches the leper, the leper is cleansed. Jesus has reached out and touched us and made us whole. He's cleaned us. And in our need, we come to him and we can rejoice and have our minds, attention, our hearts, affection, our bodies move towards that which is best, which is God himself. Jesus offers this living water and in Jeremiah, God says, there's two things my people have done that have sinned against me. They've not only forsaken the living water that I've offered them, they've hewn their own broken cisterns. They, they've made their own pots for, for, for water that they thought would satisfy them, but those pots are broken and it's leaking out. They've forsaken me. And this living water is a theme throughout the Old Testament. And Jesus is saying, this is what I give. This is what I give. And I'm giving it. I'm giving it. Jesus reveals need. And it's interesting, one more thing here, the need between John 4 and John 3, Nicodemus, he, he needed God and he, he knew the scriptures. He had the whole, the whole scriptures up to that point, the Old Testament. And he stayed on the conceptual realm, just like the woman at the well. On the conceptual realm, he was like, Jesus, how can I be born again? How can a man be born again? How, can you go back into your mother? That's, that's not gonna happen. And here over here in John chapter four, the woman at the well said, give me this water so I don't have to come back here to the well to be ashamed and have to get water. And what God is speaking to here is, I'm gonna take care of your soul, your soul need. I'm gonna take care of this. And so our loving God meets us where we are. He declares our, our need. And from this, our hearts are affected. And to become a true worshiper, we realize our need. And then we realize, like we said last week in family, that God has met us in this place of need. And our ultimate identity is we are beloved children of God. And from that place, we say, Lord, thank you. And the spirit of gratitude will ignite our praise. In Revelation 7, John writes this about the end times and, and this vision of what's taking place at the throne. And he says this, after this, I looked and there before me was a great multitude that no one could count. Imagine that, a great multitude, no one could count. From every nation, tribe, people, and language standing before the throne and before the lamb. They're wearing white robes, symbolizing this purity and holding palm branches. There's peace here in their hands. And they cried out in a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the lamb. All the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures. They fell down on their faces before the throne and worshiped God saying, amen, praise and glory and wisdom and thanks and honor and power and strength be to our God forever and ever. Amen. That's, 
the vision. And we are invited to step into that worship today. So the vision to offer our whole of our lives to worship the one true living God, our creator God, knowing that this is what we're created for and this will meet the deepest longings of our soul. So we have a vision, how, how do we move towards it? And we talk about in the Christian life, it's growth. We're not gonna wake up after this sermon tomorrow morning and it's just like, boom, you pull out all your old passion CDs and you're pumping them up and you're like praising the Lord, raising the roof. That's what we did in the 80s, we raised the roof. Don't know why, it just never was cool even back then, but you're worshiping, you're, you're walking around, it's like, hey man, I'm a worshiper, woo-woo. We have to take steps. And there's times in life that are filled with great joy. And there are times in life where we are down in the dumps and there's great sorrow, mourning and grief. But in both those times, we can worship. The intention in Dallas Willard's model, this is the values. And what I'd like to put before you is in this passage, the intention that we wanna move forward is that it is in spirit and truth. Verse 21 picks up, woman Jesus replied, believe me, a time is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You Samaritans worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know for salvation is from the Jews. And hear this, yet a time is coming and has now come when the true worshipers will worship the Father in the spirit and in truth for they are the kind of worshipers the Father seeks. God is spirit and his worshipers must worship in spirit and truth. And we think about this again, the foundation. God knows what's best. These are the type of worshipers the Father seeks. True worshipers in spirit and in truth. Both important. Let's hit truth first and then we'll go back to spirit. Jesus talking to the Samaritan woman, he confronts the errors in her thinking. Remember, she's just got the first five books of the Old Testament, and he says, you worship what you don't know. And even thinking about back to, to John chapter three with Nicodemus, he, had the, he was a religious leader. He knew it. He was high esteemed. He worshiped what he knew, but there's still something missing, and we'll get to that in a few moments. But the point is, True worshipers of God worship in truth because this is essential. We need to say, Lord, what do you say about yourself? We don't come up with our own ways to, to worship or have, like, I think God may be like this, so therefore I'll just worship like this. We wanna look to his word and say, Lord, what do you say? What's your heart? What's your desire for us? What's best for us? And since I've already mentioned Tozer, I'll keep on quoting from Tozer for the rest of the sermon, but A.W. Tozer said, what comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. What comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. And if we're not grounded in the truth, what can come into our minds when we think about God is, uh, he's distant, I gotta earn, I gotta do this obligation. And we fall into all sorts of performance traps. We fall into despair, but we say, Lord, how can you correct this view? And we do it in community with God's word. And we say, we're called to know God. Paul writes this as a prayer to the Colossian church. So we've not stopped praying for you since we first heard about you 
and listen to what Paul prays for. We ask God to give you complete knowledge of his will and to give you spiritual wisdom and understanding. Then the way you live will always honor and please the Lord and your lives will produce every kind of good fruit. And this is the part that blows me away again. All the while, you will grow as you learn to know God better and better. You will grow as you learn to know God better and better, as you know his heart. And remember the wholeness of it. We can get into this trap where we say intellectual facts. If I got it, I got it. That is so important. But to say, it's not just about intellect. It's about our hearts, about our affections being stirred, about our bodies moving towards him, away from the things of this world, to know him. And I have in your bulletin, we'll mention it one more time. Uh, Nora, Allison and I are putting together this discipleship school. And our, our desire is that we can become greater disciples of Jesus, learning who he is, what he's like. And as a, as a group of believers gathering on Sunday nights, 10 weeks here in the fall, 10 weeks in the spring, that we will hear from teaching and dialogue and say, Lord, apply this to my life. And I'd encourage you, if you've got that space, we want you to come and dialogue because we will grow together. We will grow together. So sign up for that. We already have a number of people signed up and we're keeping the registration open through this weekend. But the things that we do here, we want to foster this to know God, to know him. I was talking about this sermon with Ginger, my wife, this week, and she pulled out her journal and she pulled out a Jonathan Edwards quote. And I was like, babe, that's not an A.W. Tozer quote. I don't know if I can use it. <laughs> I didn't really say that, but that would have been funny. But she pulled it out and it really, it really struck me. He says, holy affections. And Jonathan Edwards was known for theologian par excellence, but that it affects your affections, if I can use that word as such. Holy affections are not heat without light, but evermore arise from the information and understanding some spiritual instruction that the mind receives, some light or actual knowledge. The child of God is graciously affected because he sees and understands something more of divine things than he did before, more of God or Christ and of the glorious things exhibited in the gospel. And, and to put it into just layman terms, Light yields heat. Light yields heat. Just like this, truth should yield affections. The truth of God should stir our affections. And that's our desire, our longing. And when you find you're down and maybe your affections are numb and you say, I, I just don't have any affections for anything, that's a great place to start, to acknowledge that before God and before communion and say, Lord, help me to feel again. Help me to love you. Stir, stir my heart. And that can be a starting place for the, the next leg of the journey. So we worship in truth, which is essential, but we also worship in spirit. And in the Old Testament, we saw that typically worship was relegated to a specific place, the temple or previously the tabernacle or altars that had been, where, been built where God had done a specific act. And here Jesus is saying, Jesus, I'm the temple. Tear me down, 
You'll see it rebuilt in three days. He is the temple. He is God tabernacling with us. This is the presence of God. This is God incarnate. And he's, he's here. And the mystery of the gospel is that we're in Christ and Christ is in us. And this about establishes us to worship, to come before the throne of God because Jesus is our worship leader. We can come. And Jesus says, come. Eugene Peterson puts it like this in the message, the same little section, but it, he says, the time is coming. It has come, in fact, when what you're called will not matter and where you go to worship will not matter. It is who you are and the way you live that count before God. Your worship must engage your spirit in the pursuit of truth. That's the kind of people the Father's out looking for, those who are simply and honestly themselves before him in their worship. God is sheer being itself, spirit. Those who worship him must do it with their very being, their spirits, their true selves in adoration. And so the desire, I think, even in, in this idea of in spirit and in truth, that the spirit is in the core of our being and it's the Holy Spirit awakening in us as we put ourselves in this place of Sunday gathering, as we worship him, as we seek his face in community and through personal disciplines on our own, that we put ourselves in these places to say, Lord, awaken in me this truth. Lord, let me set my mind upon you, Lord, and, and may my mind be renewed and may my affections be stirred. Because God isn't impressed, we see in the New Testament and the Old Testament with just external actions. That's part of it, we come to things, but it's more than that. God desires all of us. He desires our heart. Every few years I recycle a John Piper sermon illustration and I, I tweak it to make it personal to my life. And so I'm doing that here today. And it was recently this past week, my wife's 41st birthday. And I really hesitated sharing the story with you because I did some things on her birthday that are going to make some of the men in this room look really bad. <laughs> I, and it has to do with my artistic abilities and I'm just kind of just sharing with you here what I'm able to do, not everyone's able to do. <laughs> and so if you feel insecure, you get jabbed by your wife, I'm, just remember I'm here to teach and instruct. <laughs> so what we do in our family is we, we put up decorations late the night before the birthday so that when the birthday person comes down, the first thing they see is these decorations. So I took a picture of it and I'm gonna show it to you, but I have to explain it, but be warned. It's pretty elaborate. Here it is. So let me explain what you're seeing here. I'm taking some construction paper, some markers, but we love you, happy 41st. Drew a Wonder Woman symbol because that was her favorite superhero growing up. Can't see in the middle, but my son did a grumpy cat card. There's another drawing from my daughter that's a, a pet that is a picture of a pet and different things. But kind of the centerpiece of this, which I know you're in awe about right here, is this, that's a balloon Chad. That's me. <laughs> so the idea is that she could come down and the first thing she sees, these decorations and a balloon Chad saying, you are loved, you're special, we love you. 
And I know it, it's, it's hard to absorb what's going on there. But she really does love that. I'd call it cheesy decoration. She said, babe, don't call it that. Because I know her, I know her heart. And that makes her feel special. Now, here's where the illustration continues. If she came to me, she saw a balloon, Chad. She's overjoyed, this balloon, Chad. And she says, Chad, why did you do this? And I said, that's balloon, Chad. Real Chad's over here. And so, <laughs> it's so realistic. And she said, why? Why did you do this for me, babe? And if I just stood stoic and I just went, well, I'm a dutiful husband. I read some blogs and they said the duty of a husband is to decorate for a birthday. And I just knew it was my duty. It was hard. Tying those balloon hands were really hard. But it's my duty. Does that bless her heart? Probably not, right? That'd be pretty lame. But if she came to me and said, Chad, why'd you do this? I said, that's balloon, Chad. I'm Chad. Come over here. And she said, Chad, why did you do this? And I said, babe, because I love you. I want you to know that we delight in you. And you are so special. We are so thankful for you. And nothing gives me greater joy than to see you filled with joy. And to know that you know that you're loved. And it's like that in the Christian life early on, and it can be for all of our life that if God were to say, my child, why are you doing this? You say, well, I read the scriptures and it says duty. This is the duty I'm supposed to do. Therefore, I did it. And it's hard, but I know I'm supposed to do it. There's a sense where in our progression as Christians, that makes sense. But if we stay there, that's not the place where God invites us to stay. Because in the same way, if God said, my child, why did you sacrifice this? Why did you step out in faith? We'd say, Lord, I, I love you and I, I want you to know that you are the greatest thing in, in all the universe and you've chosen me, you loved me and nothing gives me greater joy than to think that I could live a life that praises you. And that's delight. And that's the invitation to move towards in our belovedness to say, Lord, affect my heart so that I may delight in you, for truly you are my good. C.S. Lewis has this, it's a lengthier quote, but I I love it, and I think it really puts everything in context here, from the reflections on the Psalms, as he wrestled with, why does God ask for praise? Why does, it just seems like he's an old lady just asking for compliments, and then as he continued to grow in the Christian life and think about it, he's like, no, God doesn't need anything. No, he knows what's best for us. And this is what he writes. The most obvious fact about praise, whether of God or anything, strangely escaped me. I thought of it in terms of compliment, approval, or the giving of honor. I had never noticed that all enjoyment spontaneously overflows into praise. The world rings with praise. Lovers praising their mistresses. Readers, their favorite poet. Walkers praising the countryside. Players praising their favorite game. Praise of weather, wines, Dishes, actors, motors, horses, colleges, countries, historical personages, children, flowers, mountains, rare stamps, rare beetles, even sometimes politicians or scholars. 
It's a little dig he got in right there. I had not noticed how the humblest and at the same time most balanced and capacious minds praise most while the cranks, misfits, and malcontents praise the least. I had not noticed either that just as men spontaneously praise whatever they value, so they spontaneously urge us in the joy to join them in praising it. Isn't she lovely? Wasn't it glorious? Don't you think that magnificent? The psalmist in telling everyone to praise God are doing what all men do when they speak about something they care about. My whole more general difficulty about the praise of God depended on my absurdly denying to us as regards the supremely valuable, what we delight to do, what indeed we can't help doing about everything else we value. I think we delight to praise what we enjoy because the praise not only expresses, but completes the enjoyment. It is the appointed consummation. It is not out of compliment that lovers keep on telling one another how beautiful they are. The delight is incomplete till it is expressed. And so when God says through the psalmist, praise him, praise him, he's saying, may your joy be complete as you declare this in eternal truth that can be knit with our souls. And so we have a vision, we see this intention, these values, and then we have the final call, the means. What do we do here to participate in this? And we see in Romans 12, one and two, just this idea that it is the whole of our lives. Paul writes, Therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you'll be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. And there's so much in that verse. What I want you to just imagine here, he's urging them with their, his, his, his urging, he's saying, with your desires, Come, give your whole lives. Renew your mind. Don't follow the things of this world because they, they will be the sin that so easily weighs you down, entangles you. Forsake that stuff. Come, seek his face. Come with your whole self. And here at Sojourn, we have a few different means that we want to equip our people to worship. And the first one is where you are right now. It's this Sunday gathering. It's been intentional since the beginning of sojourn. And Pastor Mike Cosper shepherded us well in that. Every week we come, we are called to worship, reminded that God's the one who speaks to us. He starts the conversation, he spoke the world into existence. He says, come. And then we move through this movement. We get to confession or lament where we confess, Lord, we're broken, we're sinners, we're in need. Or we would lament the brokenness in our world or the brokenness in our own souls. But we don't stop there. We continue on remembering that there's assurance that we have a Savior who's made a way for us and he is with us. And then we move on and we pass the peace reminding that we're at peace with God and we're at peace with each other in this family that he's called us to. We find ourselves opening the word and preaching through books of the Bible and saying, this is God's word to us. Let's feed on this truth. We come to the table and we're reminded through that sacred symbol that Jesus has made a way for us and we're gonna be feasting with him in the new heavens and new earth. And then at the end, we have a benediction, a blessing for the road to say, what you heard here, go and do. What you heard here, remember, remember. And it's catalytic. 
And that's important to put our place, ourselves in the place of saying, this is where I'm at. This is what I gotta continue being a part of. And then we have Monday through Saturday. And what do we do with that? Well, I wanna read one more passage and just give you an assignment here as application. In Mark chapter one, Jesus has just healed a lot of people. The whole town's come to the doors of where he's staying. There's people everywhere, the amazing time. Then people go to sleep and then this scene takes place. It says, very early in the morning, while it was still dark, Jesus got up, left the house and went off to a solitary place where he prayed. This is King Jesus. Simon and his companions, companions went out to look for him and when they found him, they said, everyone's looking for you, Jesus, everyone. Jesus replied, let us go somewhere else to the nearby villages so I can preach there also. This is why I've come. So he traveled throughout Galilee, preaching in their synagogues and driving out demons. And the main point I want to pull out here is that Jesus, Jesus, our God, withdrew to a solitary place to commune with the Father. All of that amazing stuff was going on down there. And I'm sure they wanted to set up a tabernacle and just stay there and bring the whole world to themselves. And the disciples come and they say, Jesus, we gotta get back down here. And Jesus said, hey, we're going to the next town. It's probably very shocking to them. Jesus created space and we see that throughout his ministry. And the truth is, we live in such a crowded, frenetic-paced culture. It is so difficult for us to create space. And when we do, our minds are going 900 miles a minute. So here's my assignment. In this week, I invite you to take three 10-minute spots this week. Three 10-minute spots. And I'd like for you to withdraw to a solitary place. And many of you have many rhythms in life, spiritual disciplines, but I invite you to do this specific one this week. If you're driving home from work to pull over to a park, I'd encourage you to be outside even if it's raining, be in a car, just to, to look up. The heavens are declaring the glory of God. Jesus used so many pictures to, to teach the people, to connect it to their hearts. And so in these three times, maybe Monday, maybe Wednesday, maybe Friday, to take a card with you and write down one thing that you're thankful for. Because we see in the scriptures that gratitude fuels praise. And maybe it is just for you this week, on Monday, in that 10 minutes, you say, Lord, I thank you for my salvation. I don't know the last time that I thanked you, Lord, for saving me. And as you dialogue with him, as you listen, respond in praise and worship, Lord, I worship you. That you, what kind of God must you be like that you reached out to the Samaritan woman and Nicodemus and me in my brokenness? And may that gratitude stir you to worship. And then maybe on Wednesday, the other one, and then on Friday, and then stick them in your pocket. Pull them out a few times. And as you do that, I want you to come back next Sunday and see how gratitude throughout the week has led to praise will fuel your worship and praise here in this place as we gather again as a body. Fuel your receptivity to receive the word as it's preached as the scriptures are read over you, as you read them back, as we sing these psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, 
and to say, Lord, give me a grateful heart and stir my affections and may I worship you because we will praise what we prize and we must foster prizing our King. And we're reminded here that he says, remember, remember what I've done. This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Being reminded of all Jesus has done, of what he's doing and what he promises to do. He is coming back. He is making all things new. He will establish the new heavens and new earth. We're gonna be part of that scene where the angels bow down and all the saints from every tribe, tongue, and nation are together declaring this with joy, joy. Likewise, after supper, he takes a cup and says, this is the cup. He shed his blood so you and me could be cleansed. He reached out and touched us and we're clean. If you're a Christian, come and partake with gratitude that leads to worship. Our tradition here is to break off a piece of the bread, to dip it into the juice or wine, whatever your conscience permits. And if you're not a believer, the scriptures say don't partake in this. But we would love to dialogue with you about what it means to follow Jesus, to take the steps, to even consider what it would look like to prize God and to know him. And let's respond. Let me pray for us.